Volume two, chapter fifteen of Mr. Hogarth's Will. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter fifteen. Mrs. Phillips' first grief. Mrs. Phillips was somewhat annoyed at her husband's treating Elsie Melville on their continental tour more as a travelling companion than as a paid dependent. Where was to be the glory of this journey through France and Italy, of which she would have to boast all her life, if her maid and herself were to be on such terms of equality? In vain Mr. Phillips said he had disliked the difference that was made between the two sisters, and had only submitted to it in London on account of the servants, and that he was glad to take this opportunity of treating Elsie as her birth and education deserved. In vain he pointed out that French ladies conducted themselves to their dependents with less distance and hauteur than English women, and that in France it was proper to do as the French did. Mrs. Phillips felt offended, and for the first time in her life a little jealous. Not very jealous, for she was so conscious of her own beauty, and so unconscious of her defects of mind and temper, that she had a strong substratum of confidence in her husband's affection. But at this time Elsie was looking really very pretty. Her movements were quick and graceful. A great contrast to Mrs. Phillips's slow, dignified, Juno-like deportment, and her conversation so sparkling and amusing, that she thought Mr. Phillips looked at her too much, and talked to her too much. When they spoke French together, for Mr. Phillips was trying to revive his more than half-forgotten schoolboy French, and found he could do it more easily with Alice than with the foreigners, Mrs. Phillips had a vague sense that they were talking about something that they did not want her to hear. Elsie would have enjoyed this trip exceedingly, but for Mrs. Phillips' unreasonableness and caprices, but, even in spite of them, she brought away many delightful recollections of scenes and people. When on this tour she felt as if she could write verses again, if she only had time and quiet. When in Paris she called on Madame Lanois with a letter of introduction from her cousin. She received Elsie very kindly, and asked her and the Phillipses to her at Holmes, but as all the people there talked French, Mrs. Phillips did not find them at all entertaining, and she thought French hospitality a very shabby affair. They did not remain long in Paris, but went down to Italy, and visited Florence and Rome. Mr. Phillips wished he had his two eldest girls with him in Italy, and promised to himself that next time he took the journey they should accompany him. When they returned to London they found that all had gone well in their absence. Francis had won his election, Jane appeared to be in excellent spirits, and the children had made good progress with their lessons. Mr. Phillips appeared to miss his old friend and neighbour, Brandon, very much, and could not find any one of his colonial acquaintances who could fill up the blank which his departure from London had made. Besides, they were always losing somebody out of their pleasant circle. Every mail steamer and every fine clipper-ship that sailed for Australia seemed to take one or more from them, and though new people did come, they did not appear to be so agreeable as those who went away. Mr. Phillips could not remain contented in London, so he proposed a trip to America with his wife and Alice as before. But Mrs. Phillips disliked the sea, and did not feel very well, so she said she would rather stay in London with the family, though it was getting rather late in the season for London. She did not care to go to Derbyshire without him, far less to go to Scotland, so if he could be so cruel as to leave her she would prefer London. If Emily had been a little older, Mr. Phillips would have taken her with him, for he disliked travelling alone, but she was too young, as he himself acknowledged. Elsie could not understand the cause of Mrs. Phillips's peculiarly disagreeable conduct to herself lately, and she was almost on the point of leaving her and taking another situation, when the children, one after the other, took Scarlatina, 
and in such a house of sickness she, their favourite, could not be spared. All lessons, of course, were at an end, and said how sorry she was to see the children so ill, and how she suffered from her anxiety about them, but it was Jane and Elsie who took the real charge of the little patients. The mother did not seem really alarmed, though the children were really very ill. The only thing she did that appeared like apprehension was making Jane write to Mr. Phillips to return to England without delay, as soon as the children were seized with the fever. Jane also wrote to Dr. Phillips, and Vivian hurried to London, and stayed with his brother's family until his return, which was a great lightening of the load of responsibility which the sisters felt rested on them. In spite of every care and all that either doctor or nurses could do, little Eva fell a victim to the disease, and after her death Mrs. Phillips, for the first time, seemed to realize the danger of the others. Everything had gone so prosperously with her since her marriage, and she had known no sorrow, and little annoyance. She had always had her husband at her side to smooth everything for her, so that she really scarcely knew what the contingencies and trials of life were. But this death, happening when the father who loved his children so dearly was absent, affected the indolent and generally unimpressible woman very strongly. She felt that she was somehow to blame about it. "'What will Stanley say when he comes home?' Oh, what will he say to me for losing his darling child? Oh, why did he go to America and leave me with such a charge? And the others will be sure to die, too, were her constant lamentations. Her grief made her quite unfit to take any charge of the survivors, and yet she was incredulous when she was told by her brother-in-law, or by the Mrs. Melville, that they were really recovering. It was not till her husband returned, which was as soon as he possibly could, and assured her that they were quite out of danger, that she gave any credit to it. <clears throat> Mr. Phillips felt the loss of one of his children more keenly than most men, but he was grateful to see that he was likely to save the others, and he did full justice to the care and attention which they had received from Vivian and Jane and Elsie. Francis Hogarth was in London, attending a short parliamentary session, when the children were so ill, and was constant in his inquiries as to their health. Dr. Vivian Phillips forced Jane and Elsie out to hear their cousin make his first speech one evening, when the patients were decidedly convalescent. Jane was very much pleased with Francis's debut, and though Elsie thought it rather tame, because it was not on an important subject, and was very calmly delivered, she was glad that he had not broken down, for it seemed a most imposing assembly for a stranger to address. Francis had visited the Derbyshire Phillipses, according to promise, after a selection was over, and had been a good deal interested in Dr. Vivian, both on account of his own qualifications and because Jane Melville had been interested in him. He now felt that Jane and the young physician were placed in very intimate relations with each other, and naturally enough fancied that what he so much wished for himself would appear desirable to a man so acute and sensible as Vivian Phillips. Her calm temper, her promptitude, her method, were all shown to great advantage in a sick-room. He forgot that Elsie's gentle, tender ways and her overflowing sympathy might be equally attractive, but Dr. Vivian was quite used to all sorts of sick-rooms, and to all sorts of nursing, and nothing was very striking to him, so that he fell in love with neither sister, though he liked them both very much. Jane, in particular, was one of those women who may count herself fortunate if she meets with one real lover in her lifetime. William Dalzell was not to be counted, except perhaps as a blank, but by means of the most favouring circumstances she had taken Francis Hogarth's heart into her possession, at least for a time, and this was her one prize in the strange lottery of love. No other attachment she was likely to inspire, as she felt herself, but her lover was not so clear-sighted. Dr. Vivian Phillips had a great respect for her, 
and enjoyed her society now and then as a pleasant change from the more insipid company of his sisters or their female acquaintances. But to spend a life with her would be too fatiguing. She seemed always to require him to think his best, to say his best, and to do his best in her company. Now a wife just intelligent enough to appreciate his own abilities, but willing in all things to be guided by him, was a desirable thing. But one so thoroughly his equal as Jane Melville would allow him no repose. The children did not gain strength rapidly, and Emily, in particular, made a most tardy recovery. Her illness threatened permanently to weaken her constitution, particularly as winter was fast approaching, and she had felt that season in England very trying during the preceding year. Her uncle Vivian strongly recommended that she should winter in a milder climate to re-establish her health, and Mr. Phillips thought going to the south of France, where the girls might acquire the language without much trouble, would be a good arrangement, but when he mentioned it to Emily herself as an excellent idea, the child languidly put it aside. "'Why not take us back to dear old Wiriwilta?' said she. "'We were never ill there. It is warmer and drier than France, and if Miss Melville and dear Alice go with us, we can learn lessons just as well there as here. I am tired of this great London, with its smoke and its noise.' Mr. Phillips was not a man to disregard a sick child's longing at any time, and when his brother said that, though he would regret the departure of the family from England, her native air was probably the very best she could have, and the long voyage in a good ship would benefit all the children, he turned his thoughts towards Australia, as he could not have believed possible three months before. The accounts he received from Dr. Grant as to his affairs were satisfactory enough, but the returns were not at all what he had expected and he found that his London establishment was very costly. He might return to England in a few years, but the children were so young they might go on with Miss Melville very well at Wiriwilta for some time. A fine ship was on the berth, Mr. Dempster was going in it, and several other acquaintances, so that, though he would have preferred waiting for Brandon's report of how things were going on, he decided on leaving England before the season was so far advanced, on Emily's account." Mrs. Phillips was in consternation at hearing her husband say he was really going to return. "'I thought you was never going back to Australia again, Stanley. You promised me you would not. What will you do about the children's education? We will take Miss Melville with us, and I have no fear but that they will all do very well. Their music, certainly, is not provided for, but something may turn up for that. Our first business is to get them into good health.' "'But Miss Melville will never go without Alice,' said Mrs. Phillips. "'Probably not, but we can take Alice, too.' "'I thought you said we was spending too much money, and that we must retrench,' said Mrs. Phillips. "'Our children's education is the last thing I should think of retrenching on,' answered her husband. "'I have heard you say that Alice saves her salary in your milliner's bills. I have scarcely seen that proved, however, Lily. But Miss Melville saves me two hundred a year. That is clear enough in black and white. It would be false economy to grudge her salary.' Besides, Emily would be broken-hearted to part with Alice, so that I will offer to take both sisters with us if they will come. "'We don't need such a housekeeper as Miss Melville at Wiriwilta. The house used to keep itself,' said Mrs. Phillips. "'I know I had more trouble with it than was pleasant or convenient,' said her husband. "'I think things will go on much more comfortably there if Miss Melville continues with us. And after all their exceeding kindness and care of our poor dear children during their illness, I know you too must be disinclined to leave them behind us.' "'Oh, yes. Really, they were very good to the children. I was not strong enough to do much for them myself, and I don't feel inclined for the voyage just at this time. Let us go overland, and it will be sooner over.' 
"'No, we cannot go overland. There is very little pleasure going overland with four young children, and as I suppose you will want one servant, as well as Miss Melville and Alice, you must think of the expense.' "'I hate the sea, and you know I must be on shore before the end of February. And you recollect Mr. Brandon, for all his difficulties, saying he was ruined and all that sort of thing, would have gone overland, if he had only had his letters soon enough. Because he was only one or two with Edgar, and time was of more importance to him than the difference of passage money. A fine long voyage will restore our children to health, and it does not matter to me being a month or two longer on the voyage.' I think we are sure to be in Melbourne time enough for you. If it were only you and myself, Lily, there is nothing I should like so much as the overland route. There is so much that I should like to see and to show you, but under present circumstances it is impossible. No arrangement could have suited Jane and Elsie so well as Mr. Phillips's proposal, as a personal favour to himself, that they should accompany his family to Melbourne. It was the destination they had long aimed at, and as they were neither of the station nor qualifications to obtain free passages on any immigrant ship, they joyfully agreed to his liberal offer. But, said Jane, we must be perfectly frank with you. We have had a great desire to begin business in Melbourne together. We must tell you that we have often planned to join our savings to those of Peggy Walker when she returns to Melbourne, as she will probably do ere long. Plans, of course, may not be carried out, but if ours are, we may leave you when you depend most on us. I am quite satisfied with my position in your family, but—' "'But neither you nor I are quite satisfied with your sisters,' interposed Mr. Phillips. "'It was the best arrangement that at the time could have been made, but you would never consent to go with us to Australia and leave Alice to work here by herself. So, if she sees anything, either in Melbourne or in the bush, that will suit her better, she is quite free to accept of it and to leave Mrs. Phillips.' Her services and your services to our children in this recent affliction can never be forgotten by us. I assure you, Mrs. Phillips feels deeply indebted to both of you. The party to Australia was increased from an unexpected quarter. Harriet Phillips had found that she made no impression whatever on Mr. Hogarth. He had paid his visit to her father, but had taken almost no notice of her, who had been the person who invited him. In fact, he had markedly preferred her elder sister— his head had apparently been so full of politics, or something else, that he had not been half so agreeable as when she had met him in London, so that she was now very sorry that she had treated Mr. Brandon so cruelly during the last days of his stay in England. He certainly would have proposed if she had not discouraged him so much. It was really almost wrong in her to try to make him jealous, and she had succeeded only too well. After having entertained the idea that she could be married to him if she pleased for several months, she missed the pleasing excitement of a lover when she returned to her flat country life. Now that her brother had actually made up his mind to leave England, she would also miss the change and the gaiety of a London winter, which she reckoned on having every year. So she astonished him by saying that she should like of all things to accompany them to Melbourne, and to see a little of bush life at that dear weary Wilta that Emily was always talking about. She did not think that she would care to stay long, but for a year or two she really thought the life would be very pleasant for a change, just to see how things were done in these outlandish, uncivilized places. She said, too, to her brother, that she thought she could be of service to Mrs. Phillips and the children. The society of Victoria was so indifferent that it would be desirable to form a pleasant little coterie of one's own. The children's music should be really kept up, and she would be most happy to give them lessons. If her papa and Georgiana and Vivian could only spare her for a year or two, she should really like extremely to go. 
She would feel it so sad when Stanley left for an indefinite period again. Mr. Phillips was pleased with the proposal. It showed a more friendly feeling towards his wife and family than she had ever evinced before, so he offered to pay all her outward-bound expenses, at any rate, for her. If she liked Australia, perhaps she might stay there with them altogether, or, indeed, she might find a home for herself there, and settle in the colony. Harriet said such a thing had never entered her head, that she went merely on a visit, but she set about getting her outfit in a very business-like way. It was an exceedingly busy fortnight for Jane and Elsie, but by dint of great applications to ready-made warehouses, everything was really got ready in time, and Mr. Phillips had again to admire the thoughtfulness, the foresight, the method which Miss Melville showed in all her arrangements, while Elsie's busy fingers were employed from morning to night in doing an endless variety of little things that were needed to supplement the ready-made stock of clothes. End of Volume 2, Chapter 15